0: So, headphones on, yeah? Is there a left and a right?
1: Uh, Where do you find left and right?
0: Almost always the cord is on the right-hand side. Is it? Oh, there we go. Right, I can hear.
1: Ooh. This is
0: clever, isn't it? I can't hear tremendously well. Are you supposed
2: to hear you through the headphones?
0: Yes. Uh, I can. Yes, here? Yeah, I've just turned the volume up.
1: Got it. We're in. And the sound engineer to boot. (laughs) A cheerful one, too. All right, so um, I think we may as well go into roll. Hey, mics are on. Uh, (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to the Retail Craft Podcast. Let's not hang around. Jamie, David, Emma, lovely seeing you in the studio. Thanks for coming. Let's just tell everyone who you are. Jamie, my co-host, what are you up to? Who are you?
3: (laughs) I ask myself every day. Jamie Merrick. I work at a company called Salesforce and been in retail for quite a long time. So looking forward to discussing it with you guys.
1: That's great. It's a change for us to be uh, off camera after our video interviews where people told us we were better suited to radios. Yeah,
0: no, I was told that several times.
3: That's great.
1: Hey, David,
0: who are you? I'm David Conn. I'm the customer service and e-commerce director for Heels, the furniture store. Right. So
1: everyone's getting very excited at that. And Emma, lovely seeing you.
2: And you, Ian. I'm Emma Herrod, editor of Internet Retailing Magazine.
1: And Emma has been doing our magazines for 12 years now. So we're going to be not only listening to some of the new interviews you've done, but maybe picking through the archive at some great interviews as well. So we call it Retail Craft because we're really interested in what the best retailers and the best people in the best retailers are up to, so it's a chance to maybe open the kimono and have a chat with you. So David, thanks for not yet opening the kimono, but welcome. Um, Tell us a bit, first of all, about Heels and your role there. Okay, so Heels is a business that's
0: been around for over 200 years. We were founded in 1810. We put our store down on Tottenham Court Road just about exactly 200 years ago. And the current store is just over 100 years old. We've always been in the premium furniture and homewares sector. And we've been through quite a history, I'd have to say. Certainly in the last 20, 25 years, there's been many ups and downs, with perhaps more downs than ups. But my role there at present is to try and drive the e commerce sales, first and foremost. It's seen to be our fastest growing channel and strategically offers the most opportunity but it's also to run our customer service
1: operation. Now you've come from a background of some great retailers, Snow and Rock where I used to spend half of my life and Waterstones where I'd spend the other half of my life but now you've gone up you know you've had some noughts to the price point so expensive sofas, bespoke furniture and of course you can't just walk in and and grab things so what was the change like when you take digital selling into something with 12 week lead times longer consideration periods and you know just a more complex product set
0: well I could give the pat answer which is that all forms of retail are pretty much the same in that you've got to be very clear about what your proposition is and then you've got to deliver it with excellence to the customer Um, If I were to pick out some of the differences, I'd say that the principal difference is that the purchase cycle is materially longer for our main revenue drivers, which is furniture. We do plenty of homewares, but uh, that's a smaller part of our business. And with the purchase cycle being longer, it renders some of the traditional marketing channels, for example, PPC, it's a little more complex to judge exactly how you run them. You can't rely on last-click ROI, for example, which would be the mainstay of a company like Waterstones. And instead, you've got to look at that longer purchase journey and really try and work out how you're going to bring customers into it and how you're going to take them through the funnel and get them to transact.
1: And so what does that actually look like practically? I mean, it sounds great, but uh, what are the differences then when you're talking about the funnel
0: I'd say if we were to take PPC as an example, as I say, typically a company is judging its PPC spend on the last click ROI. But if we're trying to sell sofas where often the purchase is going to end up in the shop, or we're trying to sell £3,000 dining tables, realistically, the person who arrives at our site from a paid click is very unlikely to purchase in that visit. So we have to look at our paid search campaign in a different way than I would be used to. For example, the SOFA campaign, we accept that it's going to deliver a lower ROI than perhaps the tableware campaign. The second thing is we put a lot of focus on trying to capture purchase intent because once we've got somebody to the site, the chances are they're not going to transact on that visit. And so we have to really try and understand where they are in their journey If they come back, we have to try and understand where they've been previously, we have to try and persuade them to come back. So we have to look at our marketing channels and the user experience in a slightly different way to a retailer where typically you arrive at the site, you decide what you want, you purchase it and then you go away. So I'd say those are the two principal things. Mm -hmm.
3: Can I, I mean, just say about expectations of customer? I mean, they, everyone talks a lot about how they're changed. Is it changed much for the business, for the sort of product that you sell? Are people still as patient and do they go through
0: that consideration process in the same way? Does it take the same amount of time? You know, My personal view, and this is not something that we've researched in any detail, is that buying anything of high value is a more difficult thing to do now than it's ever been because there's so much information available and there's so many competing offers around. So in the old days, you were presented with a product. You thought, this is nice. You didn't know there were 25 other competing retailers and 100 other products that do something similar. So you just purchased and you were quite happy with it. But that purchase anxiety now is so much greater Mm -hmm than it was 10, 15 years ago that you have to cater for that. And one of the things for a business like us where you are selling product that's several thousand pounds in value is you've got to try and provide the purchase reassurance throughout the journey that says to the customer, yes, this is the right thing for me. Yes, it's going to be of the requisite quality. Yes, it's going to deliver the happiness that I want to get out of having this beautiful piece of furniture. Mm. So I think if anything buying things, selecting things has become more difficult. And the task of the retailer in guiding the customer through that and in reassuring them has become more important.
1: How are you getting ahead of that, though? Um, I think about last year when uh, I dropped you a note afterwards. I would be in the store and had the best service from your store team. You know, things like, can we get the sofa inside? Is there a specialist deliverer? Mm-hmm. What are the glues used? Uh, you know, How can you maintain it or clean it, etc.? So the number of questions you have for something like a sofa tends to be more than the questions you have to buy a book or a new you know, Gore-Tex coat or something. How are you bringing that information that is in your store colleagues' expert heads onto the web or even mobile to help customers understand and if you like preempt the questions and help them buy?
0: Well, this, I think, is where one of the more interesting innovations that we've put in place plays an important role. And that's uh, we're using a piece of technology which connects the online customer with staff in store. So we use an app that is distributed to staff that they have on their phones, and it's connected to our live chat on the website. So if you click through to this and you say, well, I'm interested in a sofa, we will try and put you in touch with somebody who's actually on the shop floor and knows about sofas. Using the app, obviously they can text as though they're on WhatsApp, they can answer all the questions that the customer wants, you can take a photograph, you can even take a video. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring that expertise, that knowledge, that passion for the product, we're trying to bring that into the online experience and utilise, you know, what in truth is a somewhat underutilised resource in our stores. that People aren't queuing, you know, to make their transactions. It's a very personal, intimate experience. But staff can be twiddling their thumbs from time to time. So we're giving them something to do with their thumbs instead of twiddling them.
1: (laughs) And and how has that been received? Was that you know, an imposition from corporate overlords or a welcome release of talent and expertise? I mean, how, how does that go from great idea and technology to rolling out on the shop floor and behind the scenes?
0: There's two things that have provided a great incentive for the store teams. The first is that we are able to attribute a conversion online to the conversation that the staff member has had. And we're able to incorporate that into our commission structure. So uh, a guy in store will receive Mm. commission for any online sale that's made. The second thing is that one of the outcomes of the live chats is that the customer may still be undecided. So what we see quite often is, look, why don't you give me your phone number and I'll give you a call? And what we've seen in The Kingston store, which is the one which has really picked this up with the greatest appetite, is they have made a large number of transactions that go through their store number because they've instructed or they've asked the customer to make a phone call, and then they've taken it as a telesale. So two really good incentives. Kingston have really grasped the opportunity. They're a smaller store than Tottenham Court Road, but because they've really got into this, they've been able to drive far more of these referred sales than Tottenham Court Road have.
3: So it sounds like there's a kind of a bit of a symbiotic relationship between the two, you know, digital and, and in-store. You mentioned that digital is doing well, as it were. So is it kind of as a, the other way around, as it were? That's pushing more activity online as well as the benefits you're getting in-store from rewarding the people according to
0: what they do we're a relatively small business and i think some of the cultural issues that you will have in larger organizations where there's something of a barrier between the stores and online of course there's a bit of resentment if a customer walks into a store and says oh you know what thanks for all your advice i'll place my (laughs) order online of course there is because the stores are incentivized on their performance but i think the issues are significantly less than i've seen in most of the other retailers that i've worked for And I think we are able to show, not necessarily very scientifically, that a large number of people who end up purchasing in-store have been referred by the website. That's been their first interaction. The digital marketing, we see digital marketing, we see pay-per-click activity and our digital prospecting. We see that as equally bringing people awareness of the brand, bringing them into shop, as we do bringing them to website and making transactions online. It's not idyllic. But I'd say there is a strong sense of corporation. There's a strong sense that this is one business.
1: Mm, that's a a real joy. Now, you have the the brand, it's got a very strong connection with the physical stores. The stores themselves are beautiful bits of architecture, they're flagships, they're iconic, especially on Tom Cole Road, which I know well. But yet all around us we hear Doom Gloom, Challenges the High Street, which we're familiar with. Are you in a high street's doing well mood, high street's challenges, high street's doomed? Where do you sit on the sort of spectrum of positivity about the high street and what needs to be done to give it a a longer life?
0: I think undoubtedly high streets are challenged. And again, I would challenge any retailer that you talk to to say that the trend is relentlessly positive. There is less traffic on the high street. There's less traffic this year than there was last year. And last year, there was less traffic than there was the previous year and so on. So there is a great challenge in getting people to visit the high street. They're simply doing it on fewer occasions. Mm. So I'm not doom and gloom, I think there is still a strong role for the store. And I think a multi-channel retailer, particularly in our sector, is materially stronger than online only. And what you have seen in our sector is you've seen the likes of loaf.com, mate.com, sofa.com, all opening high street presences so that they can get customers to see the product, to try it in real life, because you can't, in all honesty, rely on your returns policy. Customers, if they're buying a sofa, if they're buying a mattress, they're going to want to try it. So uh, there is certainly a role for the store, but I think the way in which we judge the performance of the store will have to change and it will have to reflect its role as a marketing channel, as a Uh, trial channel as an experience channel, as a returns and service channel. I think we will have to learn to evaluate store economics Mm. in a different way. And the other side of it is there will certainly be some reassessments of what retail rents are because the relentlessly upward uh, rent revaluations that we've had through most of my life in retail, I, I simply can't see those being sustainable. So I think landlords will have to learn to be A lot more flexible.
1: Yeah, and it's odd when we talk about it with code or with service behaviors, those can flex. Mm -hmm. Leases are one area that just hasn't flexed uh, enough for maybe the agile business. So uh, I think that's a topic we'll definitely um, return to in future. Uh, But just sticking with the store, in the furniture sector, there's a lot of digital innovation with, um, you know, made having a showroom design your own, uh, Ikea now going, you know, all guns blazing with VR, AR, every R going. Um, what are you doing that's exciting you to you know amp up or turbocharge the store experience, if anything, or maybe these are just, you know, gizmos? What's exciting you about the digital store? So we have tried a number
0: of in store innovations, handheld devices. And we've really struggled to find meaningful use cases or solid performance out of any of them. So, in a way, we've retreated from some of that more innovative stuff. What we have done is for our sofa ranges, we've introduced now 3D or 360 degree rendering of all of our sofas in, yeah. in all of the Heels fabrics. And we're finding that that's used a tremendous amount by the guys in store to demonstrate what a product will look like. Because of course, we generally will only have one version of a sofa or an armchair in the store, and it'll be in one fabric. So what we're trying to do is we develop something for the digital experience, but we have half an eye on how that might be used in the store environment. I think the next step will be AR. I have no doubts that at some point that will become more significant. People ultimately want to see what their furniture is going to look like in their environment. But I think it's unlikely, in all honesty, that Heels will be leading the charge in that regard. I think we'll wait until we see a really solid app that we can then plug into and we'll go along with that because I think there's definitely scope to say, show me what this is going to look like in my living room.
3: Mm. What's the, the, the feedback of data from all these activities you're doing in store, whether they're the new ones or the existing ones of selling furniture? You, you, know, are you Do you feel like you're able to capitalise on it? Do you think that there's the opportunity to exist? I mean, we saw some data, from which we did with Deloitte recently, where people using data are twice as likely to... Yeah, perform better, you know, 10% plus or whatever the report said. So do you really feel like the opportunity is there or is it just a bit
0: difficult right now? We're a small company. Mm. Uh, We don't have teams of analysts running around analysing things. Um, We also, because we're a small company, are not able to execute hundreds of micro initiatives. So we have to be tremendously focused about what we take an interest in And what we execute against, we can only do a limited number of things well at any given point in time. One of the issues of being a relatively small company is you don't get a lot of usable, and I use the term advisedly, you don't get a lot of usable data. Mm. Um, So for us, uh, we're a little more anecdotal and qualitative, and we tend to rely on that. Obviously, if we create digital initiatives, if we redesign elements of the website, then we try and deploy as much analytical weight as we can. But but I think big data, the use of data, yeah, it's great if you're Uber or Google or Deliveroo, but when you're a business the size of ours selling a wide range of product, it's not quite as straightforward to find really productive ways of deploying uh, and mm. using that data.
3: So I think yeah, the opportunity is there, but you know, I think probably reassuring for
1: everyone to know that actually it's quite difficult mm. and everyone's probably not on the same boat. I, I just expect. think I'm imagining loads of people smiling, thinking, thank yeah. God for that. Yeah. Uh, but good. I think um, one of the things that we've been working on is how you use other people's big data and AI. So plugging into some of the big data sets, the big cloud capabilities. And I think that's something that we'll definitely return to later this year. Um, David, you've balanced pragmatism with ruthlessly looking at returns and evaluating things. When you head back to the office later, what's exciting you? What's the next interesting thing on your list of challenges to knock over? We've launched a couple of initiatives
0: recently that are in their early days. So we're working with a new basket abandonment and browser abandonment email service where we're trying to be far more proactive both about the collection of email addresses, which has become more difficult through the standard routes post-GDPR, but we're also trying to understand where the customer is in the journey so that we can send them an appropriate basket or browser abandonment email. Because again, coming back to my point about intent, for us... Intent is the biggest driver. It's a bigger driver than CRM. It's a bigger driver than profiling of customers. If somebody's searching for a sofa and they've arrived at our site, that's a great indicator that they're interested in sofas and hopefully that they're interested in buying them from us. So we're really trying to get to grips with this uh, new provider that we're using. A second thing for us, and I'd say this is a bit less exciting and is a bit more... A business issue that we're trying to resolve is we're really focusing on how we can improve the post purchase customer experience because many of our products take a significant amount of time before they're delivered. And in the world of furniture, there can be delays, there can be delivery problems. So we're spending an awful lot of time at the moment looking at how we can improve the communication process how we can improve our tracking of where the order is, and how we can respond as quickly and effectively as possible to customer queries. Mm. So,
1: a bit less excitement, a bit more requirement. Excellent. Well, look, uh, and I think you're blending those two sides of uh, e-com and customer service, building customer value. Fantastic. Now, don't go away, uh, Mm. even though we are now turning to Emma. Uh, Welcome back, Emma. Um, So, Emma, you've been doing our Magazine for absolutely forever. A few years. A few years. And, um, you know, it's a thematic magazine focusing on long form interviews and analysis. And one of the things I wanted to catch up on with you is, you know, moving from a smaller business now to some of the giants, uh, the supermarket sector. So you have been doing lots of interviewing of supermarket people recently. So Chris Conway from the Co op was on the cover last month maybe let's just catch up and just hear what your thoughts were on uh, your conversation with him
2: yeah the interview with chris conway was interesting because the co-op has the i'll say advantage of being a cooperative in the same way that john lewis is but they're not online in the grocery sector so i went to speak to chris about how they're using digital technology in the store environment to improve things For those customers that want a faster checkout experience so they're using scan and go on you scan the product on your own mobile phone using their app you then check out paying with your mobile don't have to interact with anybody at all but they're a convenience retailer so lots of people are just dashing in picking up sandwich bag of crisps drink or whatever dashing out again or there are the community based or the community shops where people want to go in and have a chat
1: Mm. with
2: the person at the checkout so they're having to balance what each of those different customer groups want to interact how they want to interact what they want to buy where there are gaps on shelves if need be using images from cctv that can highlight what isn't there or what might be in the wrong place using facial recognition to Um, recognize the delivery driver's coming in so the door can be opened, let them in. That facial recognition could also be used to check that the customer is the right age for buying age-restricted products Mm, at a um, self-checkout.
1: Interesting. So a lot of cutting-edge technology that is conspicuous by not looking like Technology <laughs> in your face. So very much, you know, the, some of the advances that we were seeing at NRF last year with the folks on the digital store. When you know Jamie, you and I were walking around, and everyone was talking about store, 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 but deeply digital with AI for face recognition, uh, very strong workflow and processes, and then you know, data behind it for, you know, shelf completion, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is this something that you're seeing sneaking into stores as well, these, you know, big technologies but done in a very light way? That's a good
3: point actually. When you think about it, I don't actually see a lot of it in practice. As I say, maybe that it's just there and I haven't realized it. And that's your point about the sort of subtlety of some of it. It's not quite always in your face. But, you know, if you look out to the east, the far east, there is all sorts of videos on there about, you know, a, a brand called Hema uh, Supermarket out there. And it's just extraordinary what they're doing. And that's literally in-your-face technology, all sorts of, uh, you know, selections of products and scanning and this and that and the other. And so it's definitely happening out there. I don't feel it here, but, you know, having... Read some of the sort of the stuff that you've been coming up with them. It's it's interesting to see that it's all been trialed. I hear a lot of other trialing, and it's going to be interesting to see what comes out and is practical. I think the thirty plus facial recognition, for example, is a very simple, fantastic step. Although I get delighted by the fact that if someone comes up to check my ID, I really, in my heart of hearts, know <laughs> it's not going to be because they think I'm too young. It's just a pain, and, and when I'm in the local supermarket near where I live, you know the queues are sometimes never ending. So it, it'd be fascinating to see it. And I see that the co-op has got some interesting stuff going on. So. Long may it continue. Yeah. It
1: and it's balanced? interesting that Chris uh, is balancing the environment and experience for their store colleagues as well. I think this is something we're seeing coming out a lot, which isn't just all about the customer. It's about making their staff more effective, better workplace and so on. So I thought that was intriguing.
2: Mm. They're wanting to make things simpler for the store colleague so that they have a better work life, the operations more efficient, but also... Um, in the same way that lots of other retailers are doing, it means they store staff then have time to spend with the customers.
3: Mm, excellent. It's, it's always been a very inequitable relationship, hasn't it? Because people are walking in with this fantastically powerful device, i.e. their phone, and they can do all sorts of things, yet the person standing there who's just put some stuff on the shelf or whatever they've done and <laughs> not equally armed. It's not exactly fair, so it's good to have, be balancing up.
1: And also not just outsourcing your processes to the customer uh, as well, <laughs> yes. but you know, giving them an experience. But um, while we were talking uh to Chris, the news of Asa Sainsbury's was also coming out and you covered that as well. So how do things look from that vantage point?
2: Well, one of the big things that's come out from that announcement was that they're targeting savings of £500 million through operational efficiencies.
1: That's not a small number.
2: (laughs) Which, there's co-op trying to get efficiencies through helping its store colleagues. The sainsbury's walmart announcement you think well how are they going to be getting their operational efficiencies but also what's that going to mean for their suppliers yes which is also another big theme with what's happened recently with tesco and Carrefour.
1: exactly so we have co-op looking at sort of invisible capability if you like i'm sure they wouldn't say that so apologies for that phrase hamer James, you mentioned which is very much delighting in the technology Asda, Sainsbury's, who are putting together very capable direct-to-consumer services. But then Tesco, Carrefour are really saying, we're going to stay our own brands. They have a very small market overlap in terms of footprint, but yet, again, a pressure on suppliers' efficiency scale. Uh, any indication of how that's going to play out from uh, the consumer perspective? Or is it all going to be behind the scenes, do you think?
2: at the moment the news is all what's going to happen behind Mm. the scenes as far as buying own brands what it's going to mean to suppliers because Carrefour's the largest grocer in Europe Tesco obviously over here but it's interesting though how it's showing that retailers can work together in non-competitive ways um
3: Hmm. What, it, what I was, was it really interesting is, you know, from the customer point of view, when I spoke to a supermarket, uh, an employee of, of one of the big supermarkets, they said their thing is all about flexibility, delivering to the same shopper perhaps three or four different use cases where they come in just for something quick or they come in for a big shop or they're going to do it online. There's so many different ways in which they, uh, you know, consumers now, we all operate, we're so hmm. demanding of, of stores quite unfairly sometimes, I think, but that's the way it's gone. And surely some of the savings that they're going to make or the operational efficiencies they're going to benefit from, presumably that will, I guess, be invested back into the experience for the customer. Is that, you just,
1: yeah, it's hard to tell. Or margin, it's
2: hard or, yeah. to tell. Well, margin, yeah. sure,
1: but I mean, it's not just yeah. about that. It's well, something we're going to be looking at. Um, but David, if I think, um, if we bring the analogy back to you, I would find it quite hard to imagine that you would cooperate with another furniture manufacturer Am I wrong, or I mean, would you share factories, would you share craftspeople, or is that something that is you know, very much baked into your brand and the product? That's a great question.
0: The furniture supply chain for most furniture retailers or providers is pretty hard work. When you're IKEA and you're producing things in the tens of thousands, then it's a little more straightforward. You can take control of the supply chain. When you're a business of our size, it's very difficult to get a real control and a real efficiency in the supply chain. So I'd say it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility that we might cooperate with other players, particularly those in other countries that we don't really compete against. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's very difficult to get scale and at the same time manage your stocks and grow to a size that is profitable. And and we've seen that with some of the real high growth stories in in our sector. They're buying growth. They're trying to get to a point where they're efficient enough to make money, but thus far struggling. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that
1: we might cooperate. Great. Well, look, on that positive note of cooperation, uh, we will be coming back in the near future to... um, the supermarket sector because we're working on a research sector report for that. Emma you'll be joining us the next issue where we're going to look at some of our other interviews. so thank you very much David thank you for being so open Jamie great chatting with you again so we'll leave it here for this episode but we'll also put in the program notes links to the Deloitte uh, report that Jamie mentioned as well as the magazine articles and transcript. so thanks for listening I think I should now tell you to subscribe using whatever RSS or podcast reader is your favoured one but uh, we look forward to being in your ears again soon thank you ta-da thanks guys that was great so what did we miss out that we should have asked that was uh, a super cunning question did i let anyone off too lightly
3: well, I, I always I mean, I always like to, you know, ask when we got people like you here, David, to you know, the sort of busting some of the myths or, or reinforcing some of the myths, you yeah. know, about the omni this or, you know, those kind of things. Where do we sit? The people who are actually at the coalface face today, how are you feeling about it? Is it a lot of, you know, hype or is it actually oh. true?
0: Um, maybe? Well I I'm probably the in a sense the worst person to ask because I am the most skeptical person in the industry. And it's a tremendous struggle for me to keep an open mind about (laughs) all sorts of new stuff because my first reaction to almost everything is, what is the point of that? So for me, there are tremendous... uh, There's always a theme of the month, isn't there? It was big data, now it's AI and chatbots, it's personalization. And I think for most retailers, they don't stop and think, what is this really for? What's the purpose that it is serving that will benefit Mm. my proposition? They see a nice shiny piece of tech and they think, hmm, that's nice. I think in a sense, because I come from a very grounded bricks and mortar background, I've been in retail for an awfully long time, I'm inclined to be a little more practical about these things and hmm. always ask the
1: question, "What what is it for? But you're practical. I mean, you're characterizing yourself in a slightly grumpy way, but you're pretty ruthless about driving forward initiatives where you see an advantage. So, what is it about your cynicism antennae that switch to something and say, well, that's worth investing in or not? Because earlier on, you were talking very pragmatically about knocking cowed away, but also working hard at the customer, monitoring, conversion, you know, realistic about the role of the store. So what does tickle your enthusiasm antennae?
0: I often ask myself the question as to why did I get interested in this thing? Because we have, despite being a small business, despite having tremendously small budgets, we have invested in, I'd say, five or six things which are quite innovative over the course of, of the last 12 months. Generally, I'm looking for something where there is a clearly deliverable result either in increased efficiency, better user experience, or better customer service. And I think there's an element of subjectivity in that. Mm -hmm. There's an element of how persuasive the salespeople are, but there are an awful lot of me too products out there Mm. And really sorting out the wheat from the chaff is incredibly difficult. I often joke that I spend probably half of my jobs saying no. No, I'm not interested in this thing that you're saying is the thing that's going to transform my life. But I have to try and keep an open mind because something will be presented to me. Mm. I look at it and think, okay, yeah, I need to take a second look at this, a third look at this and see whether it genuinely delivers some benefit either to, say, efficiency, customer experience or customer service.
1: Interesting. Well, look, one thing we need to take a second look at is the excellent coffee here. So should we go <laughs> and uh, grab some coffees? And, uh, yeah. And may, it may maybe a bit of a lunch as well, food. so you
3: never know. Coffee and lunch. There look at
1: that. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> so much, guys. Thank,
0: thank, you. You. thank you. Very good.
2: Lovely. Thank you.